All through time, all through the history of the world, people have asked these fundamental questions. What kind of a world is this? And who are we in it? When I was graduating from high school many years ago, my dad, who was a pastor, was invited to give the baccalaureate talk. And I, <laughs> I can't tell you how nervous that made me. You know, unless you're a preacher's kid, you don't understand what a tightrope you have to walk to be cool at the same time as the preacher's kid. And the idea of having my dad as the preacher up in front of my entire high school class on display, <laughs> preaching to them, that made me very nervous. But it turned out well, actually. My dad talked about a movie. If you're as old as me, you might remember it. The movie Alfie. And there was a song that went with it that made it on the radio. What's it all about, Alfie? Now, my dad didn't really talk about the movie much. He mostly talked about that question. What's it all about, Alfie? And I remember uh, after it was over and I was walking out, I was just behind a couple of my classmates who didn't know I was there. And I overheard one of them say to the other, you know, that was actually kind of cool. <laughs> I was, I was so relieved. Oh my goodness. But yes, even 18 year olds in Fresno many years ago were asking the question, what's it all about? What kind of world is this? What are we supposed to be doing in it? Now our, our civilization, our modern civilization is brilliant at answering these questions in material form. If you want to know what the world's made out of, if you want to know the geology of the world, if you want to understand the atmospheric conditions, the chemicals and the different uh, uh, ways in which the weather performs, we have a lot of information that our ancestors had no idea about. And if you want to look at yourself as a material being and you want to understand how many cells you have in the body and you want to know, uh, you know, what kind of genetic material is in the cells and which chromosomes provide which kinds of, of uh, behavior uh, on, at the cellular level. And there's just immense detail that we can share on that level. But unfortunately, and I don't want to knock that, I mean, that that's wonderful that we've been able to investigate the nature, the material nature of our world in such detail. But it really doesn't answer the questions of what kind of world it is and who we are in it. From the beginning of time, uh, people have been answering those questions by telling stories. And Genesis 1 is one such story. Now, as, as Kent pointed out last week, there are many creation stories, some, a number from that early day of, uh, of, of Genesis. Uh, the Babylonians had actually several stories that they used. Kent told us about one. He, and what, what, what world did that reveal? Well, the world that that story tells is the wor world of the gods. There are so many gods. There are gods everywhere. There are gods in the trees. There are gods in the skies, the moon, the stars. And what are the gods doing? They're fighting with each other. They're killing each other. They're having sex. They're cutting each other in two and the, using the blood to nurture the soil. And where do humans stand in that story? Well, humans are their slaves. 
They don't have any real significance except in order to serve the gods. What a difference from that story, the answers of that story to Genesis 1 as we hear them. Uh, we've been going through the first five days in our sermon series so far, and you've heard that rolling cadence of, and God said, and God said, it was good, it was good. But let's go on and hear uh, days uh, six and seven. This morning, there are two scriptures read in the New International Version. Genesis chapter 1, 26 through chapter 2, 2, and Colossians chapter 1, 15 through 20. From Genesis 1, 26 through 2, 2. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increasing number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, Everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So, on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. John Walton, who is an Old Testament scholar at Wheaton College, says that Genesis 1 is a temple narrative that it's a story of how God is building a temple where he can live and where he can be worshiped. That the whole cosmos is a grand cathedral to God in which he lives. And that's actually what parts of the Old Testament say, which in which God claims that he actually lives not in the temple that, the, that was built in Jerusalem, but in the whole cosmos. Uh, listen to Isaiah 66, 1. This is what the Lord says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? So God's home, his throne where he rules is as high as the heavens and as low as the earth. And he fills it all. That's the kind of temple that's being built in Genesis 1, according to, uh, according to John Walton. Now, what 
what Walton sees is that the days are actually listing the functional elements of the temple. It's not actually what we've often read it as, as the story of how God built a physical structure, but it's about the functions that must go on in order to build the kind of cosmos that he wants to live in. And so it's not the materials. It's, well, a good comparison would be if you're starting a company, what are you, what does that mean to start a company or to run a company? Well, it doesn't mean material things. You can point at a building and say, is that the company? No, it's not the company. If, if they move out of that building, they're still a company. A company is more like an organizational chart where the different functions, personnel, marketing, sales, maintenance, manufacturing, are joined together and learn how to cooperate, how to work together. And and, and then there's also the, the licensing of a company where the state gives it permission to exist. None of those things has a real material existence. There are material aspects to it, but it's really more about how does it work? How do the things go together? Now, we're not building a company in Genesis 1. We're not building a building. We're building a cosmos. And Walton uh, explains in quite a bit of detail, if you're interested, how time and weather and food are lined up in the first three uh, three days and then the functionaries the the beings that are that are uh, in the in the temple the sun and the moon the animals and the humans each one is indicated in what their what their function is and then day seven is the great climax uh, I I confess I always read it as the anti-climax you know, all the work is done. God gets in his hammock and he's just lying around doing nothing. And I never understood what that was. But Walton explains when, when, when ancient texts talk about rest or the rest of a king or the rest of a, of, a, of a deity, they're talking about rule. That once you've fought off all your enemies, once you've established your realm, then you can sit on the throne and you can enjoy the world in which you live and you can rule over it. And, and we'll talk about rule more in a minute. So day seven is the climax because a temple is not a temple until God comes to live in it. And a cosmos is not a temple until God's presence makes it such. So when, when day seven happens, it is a wonderful climax. God has come to live in the cosmos and he has sat down on his throne to rule and enjoy that world. But let's talk about day six now because that's what we want to focus on. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, what, what's that about? If it's a temple story, Temples had images of gods. They always do. In fact, if you go to India today and you go in a temple, there is a god in a, a, a statue or some kind of physical uh, symbol of the god that is represented in that temple. Now, in the Old Testament, there's only one god. Hindus have thousands of gods. The Babylonians had thousands of gods. But the Hebrews only had knew that there was only one God who made heaven and earth, and he is invisible. But in the temple, we are his image. We signal his presence. 
and we relate to the rest of the creation as representing him. And the sum of it all, it, as we reach that sixth day, it's said that it's not just good, it's very good. You know, all through the first five days, it says verse by verse or, or day by day, it's good. God saw it and it was good. God saw it and it was good. When he gets to the sixth day, when humans are added and the, the, the cosmos is complete, then it gets a gold star. Very good. That's a wonderful story. Now, what does it mean that we are made in the image of God? Most of the time, people talk about our capacities because we do have human capacities that are that are decisively different from what the animals have or any other part of the creation. Uh, Ross Douthat, who writes for the New York Times, had a column a, a few weeks ago in which he talked about this, and I'd like to quote it because it, it's, it's really good. He said, we are obviously part of nature, an embodied creature with an animal form, and yet our consciousness also seems to stand outside it with a peculiar sense of immaterial objectivity and almost God's eye view, constantly analyzing, tinkering, appreciating, passing moral judgment. Now that's who we are in the image of God. God stands outside his creation. He's above it. He can look at it. He can appreciate it. He can pass moral judgment on it. And so can we. We have consciousness to be able to be not God, but like God representing God, because we have that ability to see and analyze and tinker and appreciate and, and pass moral judgment. Now, one of the powers that we have with this consciousness is the power of words to create. We take it so for granted, but we have this amazing power to make things happen by opening our mouths and saying words. And that echoes what we read about in Genesis, because how did God create the heavens and the earth? He spoke. He said, let there be light, and there was light. Now, we're not God. We don't make light. But we do make, we do make realities that are very powerful. And that's, you, you may remember a few weeks ago when I was preaching on Proverbs, I talked about this, how in our families and in our neighborhoods, and in our workplaces, what we say creates a reality. If we speak words of kindness, that creates one kind of reality. If we speak harsh words, it creates another. There is an amazing power to create reality by opening our mouths and speaking. We also have the ability to manage, and this is maybe the center of what Genesis is emphasizing. Now, let me read the, the words again from this passage. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Now, I emphasize that word rule because it's, it's, it's at the heart of this. And that word is, as you may know, very controversial. It's been accused particularly by environmentalists, of being permission written in by human beings to the scripture that gave them permission to exploit, to dominate, to control the environment, to treat the rest of creation as though 
we were the masters of it and its particular nature and its needs and its its uh, flourishing had nothing to do with us. We could just use it any way we wanted and we should because we're told to rule. Now that certainly has happened. No, there's no doubt that that's an accurate description of much of what we've done with the rest of creation. But that's not what the passage is talking about at all. In, in Genesis, rule is a creative function. And let me, let me come back to the company analogy. If you're the CEO of a company, you rule. Do you mobilize the workforce? Do you dominate it? Do you control it? Do you exploit it? Are you there to use the company for your own personal ends? No, not if you're a good CEO. Rather, you're defining the roles, you're organizing the different functions, you're making sure they're productive, that they work together. You're making the company flourish. And that's what it means to rule in Genesis. And you can actually see this if you, if you just read the text carefully, because the rule, what is the first thing that humans are said to rule? This actually says it twice. We are to rule the birds of the air and the fish of the sea. Now, if you think back of a, of a person 5,000 years ago, and he, they have so little technological capacity, how could they possibly look at the birds flying overhead and think that they were going to dominate and control and exploit those birds? There's no way. Those birds fly where they want to, and you don't control them. And the fish in the sea, you can't make them go anywhere that they don't want to go, and you can't make them come to you. But what it means to to dominate, to, to, to rule over the birds and the fishes, to see them for what they are, to recognize what they're good at, to, to appreciate them. We don't, we don't control the songbirds that sing in the trees every morning, but we recognize the beauty of their songs and we enjoy it and we have a duty to protect them when that uh, comes up in any way. When we turn our creative role over the plants and animals to ones of exploitation and, and, we, and we try to dominate them for our own purposes alone, then we deface the temple. The temple that God made is being marred by the way we treat the rest of the world in our rule. And, and of course, it's not just animals and plants that we can mar and, and exploit. It's also other human beings. And this is sharpened by the realization in this text that every human being is made in the image of God, not just made by God, but made in the image of God. Not just the good people, not just the useful people. And so in this basic text of scripture, we realize how deeply offensive is war and murder and abortion and every kind of violence against human beings. And racism and prejudice insult God's image. We deface the temple. We take a spray can and we paint over the beautiful details of the temple when we do that. So in this text is a warning implicitly against abusing the temple. But it's more than a warning, it's a calling to represent the presence of God in the cosmos. We are the image of God in the temple. We serve him there. We are not his slaves, 
we are rather ambassadors. And if we're ambassadors, who are we representing? And what policy do we promote on his behalf? Well, Jesus said it, God is love, love. So to live in his image is to love your neighbor, to love God. To live in his image is to create beauty as he creates beauty. To live in his image is to speak the truth as he speaks the truth. So from this elemental passage, we get a picture of a beautiful cosmos, a beautiful world that we are living in. It's not just good, it's very good. And God lives in it. His presence is here with us. And we worship and enjoy the world and we worship and we don't worship the world. We worship and enjoy God and we enjoy his creation that we are part of. But of course, that beautiful picture is not the picture of the world we live in, is it? The image is marred by sin. Emily is going to take this up next week because the story goes on and tells about how this beautiful beginning is marred by human action. And we, we know that. That's the world we know. Read today's newspaper. Read the history of the world anytime, at any point. Read the history of God's people as it's told in the Bible. And when you, when you think about the actual condition of the world, a question arises. Is Genesis 1 a joke? Is it a cruel joke? Is it portraying this lovely, beautiful world God made as though that was reality? But of course, as we know, Genesis 1 is the beginning of the story. It's not the end. And as we close, I want to reflect uh, a little bit on the, the end of the story. Let's hear from what Paul wrote to the Colossians. From Colossians 1, 15 to 20. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Paul is looking back as he writes this surely to Genesis 1, where we are the image of the invisible God. But our image is marred, not lost, but damaged. And Jesus, who was there at the beginning, has never lost the purity of that image. He is the image of God. <clears throat> he is what we were meant to be, what we are meant to be, God's true human. 
He's also, at one and the same time, the creator God himself. The creation was made in him and for him. In and through Jesus, we as image bearers are being restored. We are a new creation. That's what the New Testament says. And if we're images of God in Jesus, that finds its highest and best expression in the cross. There's no cross in Genesis 1, but it's not the end of the story. It's only the beginning. Jesus reconciles us to God. He restores our image through suffering death on our behalf. He's the first to die and rise again. And we follow as his brothers and sisters to be like him. To be like Jesus is to embrace the possibility of sacrifice, of suffering, even of death out of love for others and to embrace resurrection, new life. So what kind of world is this? It is God's temple where he lives and where we are also to live in harmony with him and all the rest of creation. Who are we? We are God's image bearers, representing him to the whole cosmos in all his love, his goodness, his beauty, and his truth. May it be so. Amen.